PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. If you're going to manipulate, manipulate. Don't shake the joint around. We wanted to run with what's currently implemented in clinical practice. We have in physical therapy, and particularly manual physical therapists, a language problem. I think we need a lot more evidence before we could throw a lot of these other techniques away. This installment of the PTJ Debate Series addresses classification and manipulation for low back pain with participants Christopher Marr of the University of Sydney and Timothy Flynn of Regis University. Here is our moderator, Daniel Riddle, Deputy Editor-in-Chief of PTJ. Welcome to the Physical Therapy Journal podcast debate entitled Classification and Manipulation for Low Back Pain, Should They Be Linked? The topic that we're dealing with today is a highly important and highly controversial one, not only in physical therapy, but in all of medicine. There are two issues that have received extensive attention, not only in the literature, but also in clinical practices, and these are classification and manipulation. We are very fortunate to have two distinguished experts on the topic of both manipulation and classification, Dr. Tim Flynn. Dr. Flynn is board certified in orthopedic physical therapy. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists and a frequent research presenter at state, national, and international meetings. He's widely published and continues to maintain an active research agenda in the areas of spinal and extremity manipulation, low back disorders, characterization of spinal instability, and the development of clinical prediction rules. He owns Colorado Physical Therapy Specialists and is the current president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Manual Physical Therapists an associate editor of the Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy, and owner of Evidence in Motion. He is associate professor in the School of Physical Therapy at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Our other discussant is Dr. Chris Marr. Dr. Marr is a professor of physiotherapy at the University of Sydney and leads the university's back pain research group. The group's research focuses on the primary care management of low back pain. Chris has a postgraduate degree in manipulative physiotherapy, And so it is natural that a stream of his research would evaluate the tests and treatments used by manipulative physiotherapists. His research achievements have been recognized by Australia's National Health and Medical Research Council, which is analogous to the NIH in the U.S. They have awarded him a senior research fellowship in 2006. Chris is one of the directors of the Center for Evidence-Based Physiotherapy, which is the group who produces Pedro Database. What I'd like to do is give a brief introduction of two key papers that are going to guide the debate today. The first paper was a paper in which the first author, John Childs, and Tim Flynn as a co-author was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 2004. It is entitled, A Clinical Prediction Rule to Identify Patients with Low Back Pain Most Likely to Benefit from Spinal Manipulation, a Validation Study. This was a study that found that when patients were matched to a category in a clinical prediction rule that was based on a manipulation technique, that the patients in that particular group responded much more favorably to the intervention and had a much better outcome in terms of function as compared to groups who received an intervention that was not matched to the category. Our other paper is a paper that was authored by Marr and colleagues. Mark Hancock was the chief author. The title of this paper is Assessment of Diclofenac or Spinal Manipulative Therapy, or both, in addition to recommended first-line treatment for acute low back pain, a randomized controlled trial. This was published in the journal Lancet in November of 2007. This paper found patients with acute low back pain who received spinal manipulation 
had no better outcome than patients who received uh, sham manipulation, which was a detuned ultrasound machine. There were other findings, of course, but these are the findings that are most pertinent to our discussion today. It is important to note that these patients in the Hancock and Marr study also received advice to stay active by their physician as well as Tylenol for pain control. So I would like to begin and pose this first question. Your studies were designed using different strategies to assess the effectiveness of manipulation. In the annual study by Flynn, Childs, and colleagues, you compared the effectiveness of manipulation in two subgroups of patients with acute low back pain, those who did and those who didn't meet the criteria for the clinical prediction role. Dr. Marr, in your study, you also recruited very similar types of patients. As a matter of fact, it's remarkable how similar these two groups of patients were, but you chose not to classify the patients prior to the intervention. And so why did you choose the strategy that you used for either classifying or not classifying patients prior to treatment? And let's start with Dr. Flynn. Thank you, Dan. The reason in the line of inquiry that we chose to subgroup patients is essentially we do not view abdominal pain as a single entity, nor would we think of low back pain as a single entity. I think most in medicine would think it's pretty foolish to say, a uh, patient has abdominal pain, therefore, I'm going to randomize them into a variety of different things. One can get a scope, one can maybe have a drug, and one may be given some advice. There probably would be some attempt to try to look at that patient and try to identify what features that patient brings into the clinic that may make them more responsive to a certain type of treatment. The reason we chose that strategy is primarily because of the general idea that low back pain is much like abdominal pain and made up of a variety of different disorders within it. And number two, just the data was clear that treating all low back pain as one homogenous group was not going to be favorable. Chris, response? Well, in response to your original question, Dan, I need to go back a step and say we actually did classify and conduct a subgroup comparison. And we did it in exactly the same manner as in Tim's study. Those analyses are reported in the second paper, and that's currently under review. Because it's under review, I can't really tell you much, but I can tell you that the rule did not predict response to treatment. So the design of the study is pretty much the same. We just got different results. What I think differs between the two trials is the design used to estimate the main effects of treatment. We wanted to evaluate SMT, or spinal manipulative therapy, as it's typically done for people with acute low back pain. So our clinical question was, does SMT provide an additional benefit to baseline care advice and its simple analgesics? Whereas Tim's question was, does SMT provide an additional benefit to exercise? And in my view, these are two very different questions that will potentially provide quite different answers about the effectiveness of SMT. Why did we not choose exercise? Well, we didn't choose exercise as a baseline care because most guidelines advise against exercise for acute low back pain. Another key difference between the trials is we used a placebo. And the use of a placebo is generally considered to be a good design feature because it controls for placebo effects, but more generally for changes in patient behavior because people can change what they do when they have knowledge of allocation. So providing a placebo, I think, provides better control of bias in our study, and perhaps that accounts for some of the differences in treatment effects. There are a lot of issues that both of you just brought up. First of all, Tim, to what extent do you think the exercise influenced the outcome in your paper? Yes, uh, I can respond to that. Uh, just Chris responded saying that they've actually done a subsequent analysis of the data, which based on the numbers in his trial would be very difficult because only 5% of the individuals actually received any type of thrust manipulation. So to apply a rule to a group of patients, I assume, let's see, if you have 60, Chris, you're going to have only about, what are you going to have, maybe six or eight patients to actually test that rule on. 
So I'm not quite sure how you're going to subsequently test it with a subgroup of patients. Maybe I need to go back a step and say we actually considered people who received spinal lymphoid therapy. So some people got high-velocity thrust and some people got mobilization. So we looked at whether the rule would generalize to a group of people who received manual therapy. And in terms of, well, is that representative of what happens in clinical practice? We used experienced manipulative physiotherapists and we said to them, we want you to assess these people and we want you to use your clinical reasoning and decide what would be the most effective form of mobilization or manipulation to apply to these people. So we were, I guess, a bit different from your approach. In the child study, people were controlled and they had only one trick that they could apply. They could do this one thrust manipulation. But we thought that in terms of generalizing to clinical practice, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to allow the clinicians to perform the manipulative therapy that they would provide to their patients outside of the trial. And I guess I would say that that might be a reasonable approach if we had current best practice that was being done in the clinics. And we have data from Kent and colleagues that have shown that if you allow clinicians treatment choice and nonspecific low back pain in the studies, they actually uh, they actually do worse and, and uh, than those where it's a prescribed form of therapy. And I actually don't think that's surprising at all. So I guess at the heart of it is if you allow clinicians to just do whatever they feel like, it's not surprising at all that the results are what they are. I think the danger is this idea of prediction rule would be appropriate if you allowed them to do any type of treatment. In fact, I would argue very strongly it won't hold because, again, you haven't standardized the treatment. I can understand where you're coming from, and, and it's reassuring to hear you say in public that this rule only applies to this form of manipulation. But certainly, moving around conferences and talking to clinicians, this rule has been generalized. You know, people say that this rule predicts the sorts of people who respond to manual therapy. If you're saying that your rule only applies to people who received two sessions of this high-velocity thrust, which appears to be applied to the sacroiliac joint, then I think that's probably a more constrained view of the rule than is apparent out there in clinical practice. You know, a lot of people are generalizing this rule and we were testing whether this rule did generalize to the way that manipulative therapy is practiced by manipulative therapists in Australia and we found that the rule didn't generalize. And I guess then we're not disagreeing with you. If you say that the rule only applies to the use of this specific manipulation performed in two sessions, then, you know, I think that's an important message, but it's not getting out there to the truth. I can't speak for the Australian therapists there, actually, Chris, but I would say that at least there's two things that are going on here. Number one is we would argue that and we have some data showing that our students actually perform thrust manipulation at much higher rates than practicing physios do. So our students perform better than practicing therapists because they actually use thrust manipulation versus mobilization. Manipulation... We use that term due to our own fault, and it applies to any time we lay our hands on someone. But the rule, and if you look at what's been presented, there's never been anything suggesting it's generalizable to non-thrust manipulation. We see utilization rates of 5% for thrust manipulation. I mean, when the UK beam trial and others clearly have shown that if you're going to manipulate, manipulate, don't shake the joint around. I'm with you, Chris. I'm not surprised at all that the rule doesn't hold when people aren't applying it the way they should. Like many things, standardization is going to be important in our practice before we just say, do whatever you feel like. I guess the other point I'd like to, to raise would be the view that somehow spinal manipulation, high-velocity thrusts are more effective than low-velocity treatment techniques. My reading of the literature is there's really not strong evidence to support that at all. 
And the other issue would be the idea that we would apply the stereotypical manipulation to all our patients. I'm not entirely convinced that this one manipulation is it. It sort of flies in the face of the available research evidence and it seems to be quite opposite to the way manipulative therapy has developed in professions of chiropractic, osteopathy and physiotherapy. I think we need a lot more evidence before we could throw a lot of these other techniques away. Actually, I'm not saying that that manipulation is the end-all, be-all by any means, but there probably is a general effect to uh, velocity. Biomed Central, the RCT has been posted there that's ongoing, which really does look at the subgroup where one will get thrust manipulation, one will get a, a lumbopelvic manip, one will get a lumbar manip, and one will get a more low-velocity lumbar technique. The question I wanted to pose, Chris, is, and it's directed to you, and I'd like to hear Tim's thoughts as well. The issue that I wanted to bring up is the preponderance of the evidence for manipulation, especially for acute low back pain, has generally shown either small effects or no effects at all. Your study really supports the notion that if there's any effect, it's very, very small to the extent that applying manipulation generally to this type of patient is neither cost-effective nor of any benefit to the patient. Do you see at this point that the only hope for manipulation for acute low back pain is to look in the direction that Flynn and Childs and colleagues have gone? No, because I'm not entirely convinced about the clinical prediction rule. So, no, I think to explain our result, we need to elaborate on the background care we gave. So people came in and they saw a physician and they were given good quality advice and they're given over-the-counter medications, which I think you call Tylenol in your country, but we call paracetamol right. in our country. Mm -hmm. What we found was that we had to train up the general practitioners to give appropriate advice because most of them were a little bit unsure about how to treat and manage back pain. We also had to give them fairly clear advice about how to prescribe paracetamol and we also gave it to the patient. We were pretty confident they got the full dose of paracetamol. When we look at actual surveys of practice, certainly from Australia, we know that most of the patients don't get that. So they don't get appropriate advice and they don't get the full dose of paracetamol. Unless these people are getting that background care, I'm not sure we can generalize these results. You know, we found that if people got good background care, spinal manipulative therapy didn't offer an additional benefit. But the challenge for us is to go back and try and make sure that in primary care, people are getting that good baseline care and the evidence is they're not getting it. When people receive that sort of care, most of them recover pretty quickly and I'd reserve manipulation for the people who don't recover within a couple of weeks. So I would be advocating a change in physiotherapy practice, delivering the care that's endorsed in the guidelines and taking a hands-off approach in the first couple of weeks because from our study it doesn't seem to be necessary. I don't think this trial really would suggest that strongly, especially in light of the UK BEAM trial. And their results suggested that actually manipulation alone would have the best relative benefit in terms of cost and quality of life. And that was a much larger trial, over 1,300 participants. In that UK trial, the manipulation package was standardized. Whether they be chiro, osteos, or physiotherapists, they agreed to that standardization of care. And again, I think it goes back to that, that we know that if you just let healthcare do whatever they want, they will do whatever they want and will have mediocre to no results. Of course, you say you really standardized the family practice care. Why wasn't the PT care standardized? We did actually constrain them so there's a treatment algorithm which said certain things they couldn't do and certain things that they could do. And our approach was that we wanted to run with what's currently implemented in clinical practice. I think that really 
meaningful physiotherapists and physiotherapists who are practicing SMT assess their patients and depending upon the clinical presentation, they decide that certain forms of SMT are more or less appropriate. They don't just standardise SMT. I guess we need research to sort of sort out whether in fact they've overcomplicated things. I guess that's where don't you want to influence what happens on the ground because to me these types of trials basically tell us what we already know that if we keep doing the things we've been doing we'll keep getting the same result. So this article could have been published 15 years ago and again you've admitted that the care on the family practice side when people do that that's what you get. How do you resolve standardizing family practice care and not standardizing PT care? Okay. Standardizing family practice care is quite easy because we could standardize the dose of paracetamol or Tylenol because there is a recommended system for doing that. In manual therapy, we don't really have an agreed-upon system of classification and dose of manual therapy. So well, certainly it's quite different to drugs. You know, we, There are different classes of drugs, there are different dosing schedules, and we can all talk the same language. But I would go back and say that contemporary practice in manipulative physiotherapy is not that advanced. We don't actually have an agreed-upon system for talking about the classes of manipulation and we don't have an agreed-upon system for describing the dose. And I would go back to the point that Tim's raising. You know, he has this theory that if we treat everybody with this form of back pain in the same way, we get really good results. But I guess it's a theory at the moment. There's not really direct evidence. How do you say that, Chris? Because we have an RCT that provides that evidence. The point that you were raising was giving people high-velocity thrust only one version of it versus giving people tailored manual therapy and that certainly wasn't included in the study. From your study, we can't make any conclusions about that. Yes, and I guess what I'd say, there wasn't standardization of much of anything within the PT. I would argue clearly pragmatics in low back pain have been part of the problem where we've allowed anything to go. I would like for each of you to summarize for us where you think the evidence needs to go and where the research needs to go, given these two papers, given what you've learned in your recent research career looking at low back pain, what are the next critical steps to take us forward? Chris first. It might be surprising to hear that, but I agree with Tim. I think that we shouldn't persist with non-specific back pain as a diagnostic category. If you look at most of the reviews, treatments for non-specific back pain have at best, small effects. So I'd say that a couple of decades we've had about non-specific back pain has proved not to be successful. But where I disagree is I don't think that we're going to move forward using clinical prediction rules based upon people's responses to treatments or patterns of symptoms. I think we have to move back to a more traditional system, and it's one that Tim raised when he talked about abdominal pain, and that is to actually diagnose the source of the symptoms. I believe, and, and I guess it's an opinion, I think the way forward is to return to the idea of trying to diagnose the anatomical structures that are the pain generators for people with low back pain and then trying to develop treatments for each of those different forms of low back pain. Yeah. What I would say the way forward is I'm not as convinced to Chris that we can go back at least in the short term to identifying the pain generator precisely and then matching our treatment. I tend to follow along the lines of Waddle and others in a more biopsychosocial model. The near term, I think, is 
we need to standardize practice and we need to take the current evidence that we have and just say at least folks that meet rules that are going to respond favorably apply the treatment as it's been described in the literature. My feeling the way forward is really looking at standardization of clinical practice. And the final thing is I think Chris has hit the nail on the head and I think we've maybe not stated it succinctly, but we have in physical therapy and in particular manual physical therapists a language problem. We do not clearly describe what we do and we describe it in a variety of different ways where I believe that if we could standardize language and standardize dosing, we'll be much closer to helping assist with this low back pain problem. Well, I want to really thank both of you for laying it all out and talking about these issues that we seldom get an opportunity to hear discussed at this level. And I certainly hope that we at PTJ can offer a similar invitation to the two of you in a year or two years down the road when we have a bigger body of literature to debate on. I really appreciate your candid comments and debate. Thank you very much. We invite you to provide feedback on this podcast. Do you have comments about this debate, topics you'd like to hear in the future? Let us know via email or voicemail. Write to ptj at scienceaudio.net or call 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net.